Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Adam Dorsey, a clinical psychologist in private practice in San Jose, California, where he specializes in working with Silicon Valley's high-achieving, high-functioning adults. Dr. Dorsey has appeared in the news and in documentaries and gave a popular TED Talk on men and emotions. He is the co-creator of an international resilience program at Facebook's headquarters and continues to provide resilience training to the high-tech realm to DigitalOcean. He speaks to various organizations on a wide range of topics, including men's psychology, the science of happiness, mindfulness, and adult friendships. Adam, welcome back. It's so great to see you. Always great to see you, Aaron. And we've done a couple of episodes so far. You came on and did an episode with me about adult friendships. And then was... the whole COVID situation hit, and we talked about love in the time of coronavirus and both of those episodes have been really popular. People have really enjoyed them. And so I'm really psyched to have you back again. Really psyched to be with you, man. So I was thinking, with everything going on these days, especially with COVID and the way the world has sort of adapted and changed to that and how people are feeling that doing a, some episodes or at least one episode on positive psychology topics might be really helpful for people and fun to talk about try to keep things uh, positive and growth oriented as, po as positive psychology usually has to deal with. And what better person than you to talk about these kinds of things with? So glad, I, it's one of my, I, I'm such a positive psychology geek. Uh, there's nothing more fun than reading about it, learning about it and talking about it. So this couldn't have come at a better time. Today we're gonna focus a bit about the concepts of learned helplessness and learned optimism. And we'll get to those a little bit later. But first, I wanted to start just talking about positive psychology as a concept in the field of psychology and maybe introduce a little bit the topic about that and what that means. So kind of like it's just off the cuff, when you think about positive psychology, Adam, what does it mean to you? It means what we need to go for. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual talks about symptoms and traits that we don't want, or at least that we want to reduce in our lives. And yet there was no manual that talked about, well, what do we want? What do we want to bring in? We've become very good at weeding the garden through the DSM. Well, what would constitute something like fertilizer and mm -hmm. great watering and other attending to growth? And that's how positive psychology came into the picture. And it fills such a huge need. We owe a great deal of debt to Seligman, who actually tapped into the wisdom that goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, actually, and perhaps even before that. Right. And of course, Martin Seligman was one of the people credited with the birth of the modern positive psychology movement. And he was a former president of the American Psychological Association, a very prolific writer. He's written many books. And you were mentioning that he shifted his career direction in this area of positive psychology. And you were telling me actually earlier a very interesting story about him and his daughter, I think. He was this incredible voice for pathology and learned helplessness with the dogs and the experiment that you'll be describing a little bit later. He was, he was a rock star. And as he was elected 
APA's president, I believe it was somewhere around 2000. It might have been 1998. I'm not sure. 1998. Exactly. Okay, it was 98. Okay. Just prior to him actually stepping up, he was in kind of the president-elect mode, he was doing some gardening and his daughter, while he was gardening, was whining and he said, honey, please stop whining. And she said, I'll stop whining if you stop being such a grouch. Mm. And he thought to himself, oh my gosh, she's right. Here I am, a psychologist and going to be leading the American Psychological Association and my daughter has actually called me on it. Well, what will be my platform? Maybe I need to find actually scientific ways to show for happiness. And he actually found a huge bald spot, so to speak, in psychology. And that was that the humanists like Maslow and Rogers really did not welcome science into their practice. They had really good stuff. And oddly enough, posthumously, Maslow's hierarchy of needs has been scientifically validated, although while he was alive, it was not something, to my knowledge anyway, that was put under the microscope. Mm -hmm. What he decided to do was take a look at happiness scientifically. And for every, I believe it was for every 200 articles we had on depression, there was one article even mentioning happiness. Mm -hmm. So we really hadn't explored that seemingly, you know, in retrospect, obvious field to take a look at since that should be our North Star. Well, he decided to actually go full throttle and make it the most rigorously scientific arm in psychology, if at all possible, because he didn't want anybody giving him a sideways glance saying, oh, how nice, you're going to go for this hippy-dippy, mm -hmm. new-agey idea of happiness. I mean, how are you going to qualify it, quantify it? This is not a scientific pursuit. Well, he decided to really, really put it under the microscope, have large numbers, uh, have incredible amounts of reliability in his studies to ensure that he wouldn't receive the scrutiny of his colleagues. And that worked out very well. Mm -hmm. uh, it, other institutions followed suit, Harvard University, University of Michigan, particularly Christopher Peterson for the geeks out there. May his memory be a blessing. Christopher mm -hmm. Peterson was a very big name in positive psychology. University of California, Riverside, uh, Sonia Lee has been big. And so many other voices and so many other big institutions have been bringing this forward. And we are all the beneficiaries of it. Uh, people are even using terms that are relatively new relating to positive psychology. And we've been able to even take a look at what would be a corollary uh, for the DSM. I, I mentioned that we had the DSM. Well, mm -hmm. Seligman and, uh, and Peterson together created what they called the Manual of the Sanities. It's a, a broad group of scholars from fields as diverse in the social sciences as history, sociology, religion, try to find, in psychology of course, and philosophy, try to find what were strengths, character strengths that were valued all throughout time, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of religion, regardless of origin uh, and, and ge geographically, uh, what were universal strengths? They came up with these ubiquitous strengths, 24 of them, so things like love of learning, kindness, humility, curiosity, and all of these other strengths that have been valued, courage, um, mm -hmm. considered by many to be the mother strength that without courage, uh, no other strength can really show up. And I don't know if this is like this for you, Adam, in your clinical practice, but I know in my clinical practice, 
and things have probably changed a bit since the 60s or 70s, but even today in 2020, uh, I have patients who come in and they seem to feel like what they need to do is focus on what's wrong with them and fix it. And the idea of them focusing on what makes them more me they're meaningful in life, more fulfilled, use, uh, focusing on their goals and their strengths and feeling like it's okay for me to be here to become a more fulfilled and, and a better person for myself uh, rather than fix what's wrong with me. It's, it's, for some people, it's hard for them to see that that's even an okay goal in therapy. That is such an important point. We found that people generally have a better return on the investment of their energy when they focus on their strengths and when they embody what's called an approach mindset versus an avoid mindset. Mm -hmm. An approach mindset is, I'd like to use therapy to become happier. An avoid mindset is, I'd like to become less depressed. Mm -hmm. Less depressed is a very half-baked thing. If we can get from negative five to a mere neutral zero, are we happy? And a better option would be, I'd like to see if I can rock a positive five. Right, and um, that's a reasonable goal of therapy or a life course is to just, even if I feel good, how can I feel really as much meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life as I can? And obviously the goal in life isn't to like always every moment of every single day feel like you're having an orgasm. I mean, like that, <laughs> that doesn't have to be it, but always striving to find more meaning and fulfillment out of the things you do is a perfectly reasonable approach to life, even if you're not depressed. Absolutely. We need minor chords in life uh, to show us the sadness. We have to feel the range of emotions. Yeah. We're not here just to have this really sanitary lifestyle where all we feel is happiness. As you're talking about this, uh, I am thinking about some of the research that came out of the University of California at Riverside from Dr. Liuba Mirsky. Uh, she found that only 10% of our happiness is really based on our life circumstances mm. and that 50% is actually based on our genetics. So there is kind of a, a genetic set point, but 40% of our happiness is based upon our intentional efforts. Mm -hmm. Of course, we'll feel sad. Of course, we'll have bad moments. And of course, we will not have a, a nonstop life-gasm. But with 40% in the realm of our control, if you think about that, that is a monumental figure. Absolutely. And actually, I think that is a great segue into the meat of our conversation today about learned helplessness and learned optimism. Sure. I want to start with the learned helplessness stuff because it really sets a good foundation for where learned optimism springs from that. The early research is just so interesting and fascinating that I think it's something that would be really fun to talk about. So these early experiments in learned helplessness, I can't remember when they happened. It was maybe back in the 60s or 70s. That sounds about right to me. I think it was yeah, the 60s. When, when Seligman was first doing this. And I want to caveat here, Adam, that this topic here is not for the faint of heart. This is sort of like if you're a dog lover or a pet. Right, so trigger, trigger warning. <laughs> That's right. This is sort of rated R. Yeah. Um, but, you know, back then in the 60s and 70s where some of these key experiments were being done that may not even be approved in today's world. Probably well, we wouldn't. They probably wouldn't. But back then they were, and we learned a lot from them, uh, even if we're squeamish about talking about them now. But one of these classic experiments was the study with the dogs in, um, that Seligman did. And you, you recall that experiment, right? Oof. 
it's it's a heart-wrenching story but a very uh very important piece of data right i'm going to try to explain it here and, you and i'm a dog lover as you know, <laughs> like, you know I'm, I'm actually uh, yeah my dog is right in, in my office with me right now all right well put the headphones on on rafi <laughs> doesn't have to hear this but well, to kind of explain, and I'm going to boil it down to some simplicity here. I'm not going to include every aspect of this experiment because I, I just want to try to uh, tell this as simplistically as I can. But basically, Seligman was interested to find out what dogs would do if they were placed in situations where they felt like they didn't have any control over what was going on with them. And he took these dogs. He had these two groups of dogs that were considered yoked pairs. And yoke pairs means that one dog was paired with another dog and the experimental condition was the same for both of them except for one small piece of it. So imagine a pair of the, these yoke dogs and they are in these metal boxes. And in the metal boxes are levers and the experimenter, Seligman, or his... Uh, um, his, uh, his, uh, his, his research assistants. His research assistants, there you go. His research assistants were then toggling the switch that would cause an electric shock to happen. So both of the dogs in the yoke pair would get this electric shock in this cage, this box that they couldn't get out of. The difference was one of the dogs could press a lever and learned how to press a lever to stop the shock. Now, the, the shock, by the way, wasn't a lethal shock. It was just an unpleasant shock. Not that any shock is good, but these dogs weren't killed or anything. They were just shocks that they felt that were uncomfortable. So one dog learned, if I press this lever, I don't know when the shock's going to come, but if I press the lever, I can stop the shock from occurring and it'll be okay. The other dog got the same shock, but didn't have a lever to press. So basically the shock would occur, both dogs would get the shock, and then one dog would press a lever and both dogs would stop getting the shock. Basically leading to a situation where the lever pressing dog learned, if I press a lever, I can stop the shock from occurring. So then he took the same yoke pair, he put them in different boxes. This time the boxes were a little bit, shaped a little bit differently. One, the dog was on one side of the box, which had the possibility of being electrified. And there was another side of the box that the dog could actually jump over a small fence between these two sections, these two compartments, and escape the shock. The other side of the box was not electrified. So Seligman would then turn on the charge, electric charge, and the dogs could then jump over to the other side that wasn't electrified. What do you think happens? Well, the dog that was able to press the lever to stop the shock in the first part of the experiment, what do you think they did, Adam? Well, I have a funny feeling that they felt empowered and they did something about it. Yeah. They realized like, hey, I could do something to not be electrified. I learned how to press the lever that gave me some power to stop the shock. So, hey, I'm going to jump over this fence, get away from it, and I'll be okay. The other dogs who had no control over pressing that lever, they got the electric shock. What do you think they did? They did nothing and they whimpered. They did nothing. They whimpered. They sat there. They took the shock. They didn't get up. They could have easily jumped over the fence to escape it, but they didn't. They didn't even try. So the interesting thing is once the research assistants would actually show the dogs, like they would like manually move the dog's legs, try to get them to move. They could actually teach the dogs to jump over the fence and they learned how to do it. That was the interesting thing because they had the capability of doing it. They learned uh, before they got to the point, 
I'm powerless, I'm helpless, I'm just gonna lay here, I'm gonna take the shock, and I can't do anything about it. And um, it was a very, very powerful experiment. That's where we got the idea, Sullivan came up with the term learned helplessness, the idea, I've learned that I can't do anything about my situation, so I'm gonna become helpless, and, and I'm not even gonna try. Yeah, and a lot of people live unfulfilled lives because of this exact principle. And that's really tragic. Right. And, uh, you know, either by having a good friend or by engaging in psychotherapy, corrections could occur so that, if, that we can actually unlearn this previously learned helplessness. But Right. And that's where Seligman starts getting into his learned optimism stuff. And he wrote a book about that. I want to get into that. I mean, just imagine, I just think it's such a profound concept, this idea of learning, uh, learning this idea that you're helpless, that you don't have power in your life, and you maybe can't do anything to make things better for yourself. Like, how profound is that for people and the way people may live their lives and the way they may approach challenges or things that are going on in their lives? Absolutely. And I remember was working with somebody who had been in a really bad relationship, and all he knew for six years was a particular reality. And when he allowed himself to enter the dating world, he was so shocked that not every woman thought the way his ex thought, mm -hmm. that there were actually other, less rigid ways of thinking and that a person could be kinder than his ex. And that was just so shocking. It was almost like an entire paradigm shift. Here was this very well-educated, smart man who was, blown away by something that seems obvious from the outside. Mm -hmm. But when you're so deeply entrenched in it, all you know, and all that seems to circulate is this paradigm of this is reality. Right. I think that's the idea. So you imagine children br being brought up in abusive and traumatic environments or say a domestic violence situation where a person has been traumatized, abused, uh, put down. I think it's very easy to get into that kind of mindset that like I'm trapped and you know no matter what I do I can't escape this and it's just depressing and I shut down and I'm stuck you got I'm it stuck and I, I think that's of course from a psychologist perspective that's a real tragedy because if that cage is open and you just don't know that it's open and you don't know that it's possible to jump out of it then you really are kind of stuck until you have that uh, you have that change in your perception. And the great news is that we, not to use the dog analogy too much, but we can teach so-called old dogs new tricks. A person could enter psychotherapy for the first time in rather advanced years, and the brain is plastic enough so that paradigm shifts can occur regularly where there had been previously the perception of helplessness, where it seemed like there were no options people are much more resilient, much more capable than they imagine possible. And oftentimes it just requires the stewardship of another person because so much of what we learn is not done in a vacuum. We really are social creatures who need to learn in a, through relationship, whether it's friendship or, the, you know, again, the psychotherapeutic relationship. And that's what Seligman, I think, was interested in exploring and getting to the learned optimism was how do we actually learn how to be optimistic, learn how to feel like we can engage those positive aspects of our experience and move forward. Or is it possible to learn them and to change them? 
you know, he talked a bit about these different personality styles, some ways of approaching, approaching life cognitively and behaviorally uh, between pessimists and optimists. Right. So he talked about this idea of permanence and the idea that optimistic people tend to see bad events as stemming from temporary causes and good events from permanent ones, whereas pessimists tend to see good events as temporary and bad events as permanent. So in other words, an optimistic person would see a bad event happen and is like, okay, well, this is going on right now. It's not going to be going on forever. I'll just have to figure out how to deal with this in this particular situation. But generally speaking, things will get back to normal and life isn't like this permanent bummer bad trip. Whereas pessimists might see a bad event as not, and I'll see, there you go again. This see? is another example of, of the same old thing. Life is like this. The know, system's rigged. System's rigged, like, you know, here, here you go. And that's, I think, a big difference uh, you know, in the way optimists and pessimists see things in terms of the permanence of uh, events. Yeah, it's an, it's, it's an explanatory style, and that's really what it comes down to. Human beings right. are such meaning-based creatures that we are constantly seeking an explanation. And even if it's the wrong explanation, and Aaron Beck, the great you know, cognitive behavioral therapy father, uh, came up with what he called the cognitive triad of depression, mm -hmm. which is, I feel hopeless about myself, the future, and the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, if virtually every depressed statement pertains to one of those three ideas, and Seligman, who was a contemporary of Beck's at University of Pennsylvania, kind of a more of a protege figure, uh, Aaron Beck was more of a, a kind of a mentor. What did Seligman come up with? Well, the opposite. Things uh, come up with these ways of imbuing optimism in an explanatory style, mm -hmm. which is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I see helplessness and hopelessness as kind of related terms, right? Exactly. Yeah, helplessness is maybe a feeling of being trapped uh, in terms of your situation and your ability to be able to change it. And hopelessness is more of just like an emotional, uh, I give up, I can't deal with this. Right. And if we do enough reps of that as an exercise in life, boy, uh, does it become hardwired and it, it can take some work. It even takes the willingness to accept the possibility that there might be another option due to the fact that we can experience, you know, a modicum of cognitive dissonance when we think about our past, like, well, if I've been thinking this way for the last decade plus, and I'm an intelligent person, well, what does that say about my intelligence? And it takes some humility to say, you know what? I'm willing to forego my sense of self as an intelligent person in this way. Perhaps there's another way. Perhaps there's a better way for me. So it takes some humility. And, and oftentimes when things start getting better, in addition to things getting better, there is a moment of regret. Oh my gosh, the last decade plus, mm -hmm. I wasted that time. Oh, mm -hmm. those wasted years there is a regret for the time lost. And, and that, that can be very poignant. The, the poignance and the, and the regret just do not legitimize the depression. Uh, it's still generally a better option to sign on for a, uh, a, a different explanatory style, a learning of optimism and an attempt to really foster happiness. And not only that, every day is the first day of the rest of your life, right? That's true, that's true. On my website, I have a Chinese proverb that says the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. Exactly right. So 
having some regrets, feeling some sadness, especially over things that haven't gone the way you might have wanted them to go in life is perfectly okay. I mean, people feel that way, but none of that is going to help make anything better in the future unless that is used as a way of saying, I don't want it to be like that anymore. I have the power here to change things and make things different going forward. And that's kind of what we're talking about. Yep. So another concept here is pervasiveness. It's kind of related to permanence. Again, another explanatory style. The idea that optimistic people tend to compartmentalize helplessness. It's happening here, but it's not related to everything. Like this is an incident here where I may not be able to do a whole lot to change this particular situation. This really sucks. I can't do much about this. COVID would be an example about that. None of us can do anything about COVID. But the optimistic person may say, well, this is a situation. I may not be able to do anything about this particular situation, but it doesn't mean I can't do anything to change other situations in my life. It's just this one compartmentalize this one or, or other ones too, but that the situation, they're situation specific. True. People are doing amazing things during COVID. I, I love that so many people are actually getting on the sewing machine and making masks for the healthcare community and for themselves to flatten the curve. People are learning new languages and spending more time with their kids. I'm seeing a lot of sidewalk art. I don't know if that's happening in Hawaii, but sidewalk art is adorable out here. And I see all kinds of outdoor activities that I've not seen ever, right. <laughs> frankly. Right, and so, and so, that, so the difference there is uh, you may not be able to do anything about COVID itself. It's a reality in the world. And it's a bad one, yeah. You have no control over, but you do have control over the way that you respond to it, right? We talked about that in our last uh, episode. And that's right. the difference between an optimist and a pessimistic explanatory style. An optimistic style would say, okay, I can't stop COVID from being a reality in the world. There are things I have control over that can go well for me if I exercise those options for myself. Yeah, and one might even say that the serenity prayer used by the 12-step program that I mentioned in our COVID right. episode was it was in many ways a, a positive psychological approach, really looking at what can I control and what can I not control and how do I get smart enough to recognize the difference between those two things. Mm -hmm. And a final concept about here that's related to the explanatory style is the idea of personalization. And yes. this one, I think, is really important. So the idea that optimistic people tend to see bad events and bad things that happen, unpleasant things happen in their life as stemming from an outside cause. This isn't me, this is something else causing this to happen. It's not from within myself. Whereas a pessimistic style might attribute things to themselves. So that when good things happen, optimists say, you know, hey, this is, this is great, this happened and I'm a part of it. And a pessimistic person might say, uh, well, okay, you know, that happened, it happened because of something else, but, you know, it's still the same for me. Bad things happen to me, and I, I don't have a whole lot of control over it. Right. And uh, I, I don't think Seligman's suggesting that optimists don't take personal responsibility for things that for which they are personally responsible. But uh, the explanatory style for phenomena doesn't turn into egg on their face if they are engaging in optimism. I was reading an essay, uh, I, was, I was working in Japan, and the person said, and, and I stumbled across a dead rat and I felt like a total failure. And mm -hmm. I thought, wow, you know, that's an interesting explanation to, you know, the feeling of tripping on a dead rat. 
like, hmm, there's clearly some depression here and maybe some messages that have become internalized that have gone wrong. I was an English teacher. I was a psychologist at the time. Uh, I wish I could have attended to his emotions a little better. These are the types of things that happen, and you know, to a, a, a depressed person sometimes when they see bad traffic, they say, "Oh, yeah, there it is, traffic again." Uh, and the optimistic person will say, "Will get up early and say, huh, uh, there will probably be traffic, and I'm going to, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to show up on time at work." Well, and not only that, I think the pessimistic explanatory style would say, "Here I am, stuck in traffic. I'm always in traffic. I always pick the wrong road, or my route always has to have the traffic." My life is always full of traffic. It's about me. I'm the one who is involved with this traffic and I bring the traffic upon myself or I'm stuck in the traffic. And I do this all the time, particularly when it comes to finding parking. And my wife has a vastly different style. She, she always says, and, and this isn't scientifically valid at all, but she says, I'm gonna find a parking spot. And mm -hmm. lo and behold, she finds a parking spot. So I've been trying to rock the more optimistic style. I do remember one time you and I were going to Shimo in Richmond District in San Francisco, and I was so pissed off. And this was in the 80s before we really even had bad traffic. I had bad parking. And I said, Kaplan, I can't believe how impossible it is to find parking around here. And you said, Adam, the fact that we are driving today means that we've found parking in harder situations. <laughs> <laughs> or right. something along those lines, and, right. and 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 I immediately relaxed, and we found parking. Right, right, and you know, out there in the Richmond district in San Francisco, parking is not easy to find sometimes. So no. one does have to have sort of a zen-like attitude about it, and recognize that you know everybody is driving around looking for parking, and eventually the parking is found. <laughs> eventually, the parking was found. You know, Seligman asked this important question about you know, whether or not optimism can be learned. And, you know, I have this quote that the basis of optimism does not lie in positive phrases or images of victory, but in the way you think about causes. And that's what we're talking about here. How do you think about causality? How do you think about causes for why things happen? Yeah, and that really comes down to the explanatory style. I mean, thinking about what is the cause of this? if you start beating up on yourself and say, well, I am the cause of all of my problems, uh, for example. While that may be partially true, that we need to take some responsibility, beating up on yourself and pointing at yourself will almost in a je accuse uh, stance is not going to be helpful at all. It's going to reinforce a sense of helplessness and powerlessness. Right. If you look at causation and say, yeah, there are some things that I can attend to here. I do have some power to increase this. Yeah, it is raining today and I don't like the rain and I don't like the cold. And yet, gosh, I read somewhere that the Norwegians have a saying that is, there's no such thing as bad weather, only in sufficient clothing. Okay, well, almost mm -hmm. using that as an example for how you're going to attend to yourself in life may be a better way to attend to causality. Asking yourself, what can I do given these circumstances? And most of the time, there are things that people can do in different circumstances. And I think that's the idea of learned optimism. How can I change the way I think about the things going on in my life and about the things going on with me where I can examine the causality and I can affect the outcome? It's not about saying positive things to myself. Oh, right. Like yourself, <laughs> oh, you're so handsome. You're so right. smart. <laughs> you know, uh, back in the day, there was uh, an SNL sketch by uh, Al Franken, uh, Stuart Smalley, and 
self-affirmations because I'm good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And these are have been shown to not be helpful, actually. Oftentimes when you do these types of affirmations, uh, there's a cognitive dissonance that occurs and that they are counterproductive, especially if you are lying to yourself. So yeah, we're not talking about just... I when I was telling people I was doing my dissertation on positive psychology, I said, oh, yeah, it's positive thinking. And I said, no, it's not. It has, it's, right. not it's actually science. Right. And, you know, in my practice, sometimes I talk with patients about doing cognitive behavioral therapy. A lot of people are interested in that. And so they come in and they say, hey, doc, are you going to teach me how to think positively? I'm like, no, that's not my role here <laughs> to show you how to think positively. What I'd like to do is show you how to think rationally to think about the things going on for yourself and actually think about what are the explanatory causes here? What are the data and evidence to support these things being true? And usually you want them to find data or evidence to support the ways that they're beating up on themselves and how they are pessimistically beating up on themselves are not actually true or supported by factual evidence. Absolutely, and, and being grateful is a rational act. And a byproduct of engaging in these positive practices, which are all rational in nature, is actually the by <laughs> is positive thinking, paradoxically. Uh, they, they will, through the exercises of positive psychology, become, so to speak, pos the positive thinkers that they wish to become. Uh, but there is, yeah, there's a fault in the question. Well, that's absolutely, absolutely right. And the idea is that people may end up thinking positively about things. That's not a undesirable goal. It's a great thing! <laughs> but the way that you get there is by thinking rationally, reframing things, looking at causality, and also focusing in on some of these aspects of positive psychology that you're talking about. Gratitude. You don't need to force yourself to think positively about something about yourself um, in order to have gratitude. You can always have gratitude. You know, you could think you're the biggest schmuck in the world, but you could still try to have gratitude for something. Yeah, I'm really great at being a schmuck. I'm so grateful to be good at something. No, not, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that one. But that yeah, perhaps not that. A, that reminds <laughs> me of an old Jewish joke that I don't think I can uh, say on this episode, but uh, we'll okay. talk about that one later. About That's awesome. the schmuck on the camel. But, uh, have you I, I, I already love it. No, I don't. <laughs> okay. That's pretty funny. Yeah, so it sounds like we're coming to a, an organic lull in the conversation. Right, let's, let's wrap up here, Adam. It was really great having you on this episode, and I hope we can continue having conversations about these areas of positive psychology. Maybe we'll come up with another angle of this to talk about next time. And um, I'm also, you want to just really briefly mention you're planning to start a podcast of your own, right? Yeah, I'm really excited. I, during COVID, I, I, I was interviewed on a few radio shows and podcasts, including yours, and which I always love doing. And I was reminded by some of my friends and family, oh my gosh, you have always wanted to do your own thing. So I finally came up with Super Psyched. Uh, mm -hmm. It's uh, going to be my podcast. It will be, it's, it's intended to embrace a lot of what I care about in terms of bringing happiness into people's lives through various avenues. And uh, I'm really looking forward to launching this thing. Well, I'm super psyched to listen to it, so we'll look forward to that. Adam, thanks so, so much for coming on the show again. It's been great to see you. Aaron, it's always the best.
Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.